Hi, I'm Trevor Elio. And I'm Julie Stern, and this is Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts to uncover the concepts and patterns that help us organize our world. From farming to fashion, we can understand any field through acquiring, organizing, and transferring conceptual relationships. We hope this podcast will inspire teachers and students to design creative solutions to complex problems and accelerate innovation in today's schools. If you're interested in our work, you can find out more at edtosavetheworld.com. Today's episode of Conceptually Speaking features Michael Weingarth, founder of Pillars of Learning Neuropsychological Tutoring. In addition to his work of creating personalized tutoring and test preparation programs for students, Michael has what I can only describe as an encyclopedic knowledge of all things science of learning related. In the few conversations we had leading up to the podcast and during the podcast itself, I constantly found myself scribbling notes, book titles, and names of researchers I had to dig into. Our conversation today attempts to peel back the layers on a lot of the reductive and problematic assumptions that often accompany notions of learning and intelligence. It's a great example of just how complex learning truly is and how much damage we can do when we attempt to flatten and quantify that complexity with faulty tools and instruments. In fact, the heart of Michael's work is focused on synthesizing and coordinating often siloed perspectives, approaches, and domains of research to develop a more well-rounded understanding of how people learn. So in, you know, neuropsychology is the field that I spent a lot of time reading about. Uh, the classic neuropsychology analogy is if you get hit by a line drive in your temple, you have a little bit of temporary uh, vision loss because of structural damage to your brain or structural inflammation. Your other senses allow you to still function as a human, right? You can hear, you can smell, you can figure out what's going to talk, you can do all these other things to figure out the sensory inputs you got from vision while your vision recovers. Um, Brains have that same idea with neural pathways. It's not quite as simple as like getting hit with a baseball, but the idea is that there's genetic, developmental, environmental influences that dictate which neural pathways emerge and how they emerge because of their connections to other ones. And compensation happens when something isn't according to the plan that school thinks. So the brain basically routes it through a different set of pathways. But it's not, I, I really want to, it's, it's the reason why I want to describe it as the way that school thinks of it is because it's not average. It's totally normal and adaptive and dynamic and responsive to its environment. Um, so the concept is if you're if you're operating from that place where all brains sort of walk into school with these set unique compensatory patterns, um, all you want to do then is create parallel processes for them to realize that there are workarounds and then identify what does work well, what pathways are the strongest or the widest or the most accessible and help the students use those to compensate for the stuff that is really hard. This episode is dense with resources, follower recommendations, and cutting-edge research. So grab a writing utensil and get ready to dive in. We hope you enjoy. Our guest this week is Michael Weingarth, founder of Pillars of Learning, a neuropsychological tutoring service. Welcome. We're glad to have you. Glad to be here. So can you start by just telling us a little bit about your work with Pillars of Learning? What is it? What's your your perspective? What are you bringing to the table in terms of uh, tutoring service? Sure. Uh, we sort of started out, um, you know, I started out just doing test prep after I left consulting in the middle of the financial crisis. Um, and when we started out, it was sort of just a way to move away from the prescriptiveness of national test prep companies, where you basically read a script, um, you get paid very little, and you're reading the same scripts. Every time you do a class, every time you do a session, you're, you're hmm. just reading literally this binder that they've handed you. Um, and so when I sort of said I like the working with kids a lot, and I don't like reading scripts very much. Uh, I'm sure I could do this better if I just, you know, uh, follow my gut and talk to these kids. Um, 
that sort of gave rise to this idea of student voice uh, shaping and feedback shaping how the tutoring uh, plays out. And so over the next couple of years, I was teaching in a private school, working with twice exceptional students who are students who are gifted, but also have learning issues. Mm -hmm. um, and that sort of just exposed me to a lot of things I didn't understand about how the brain works. And also many people I was working with similarly had no clue. So uh, I sort of went on my own and decided that I was going to see if I could actually put some more pieces together or at least figure out <laughs> the map of the places that I had no clue where they led to. Um, and that sort of gave rise to this idea of neuropsychological tutoring, where I've taken everything I've learned from sort of exploring in those unknown areas of the map and trying to draw lines back to places that we do know. Um, and that sort of leads to this idea of compensation patterns, which we'll talk about more in depth. But as a tutoring company, all we're doing is looking at student error and trying to look at patterns that emerge that are adaptive and dynamic, meaning they respond to their environment, they respond to developmental factors, but also to the actual ways that you help the student progress. So unlike uh, surgery, where you're just going in and you know doing the surgery and then you close it up and then you're done, this is very similar to injury rehab where we're actively monitoring what's going on every stage and also everything that feeds into the component that needs the, or the, everything that feeds into that issue for that student. Wow, very cool. We love analogies so much. And, uh, you know, what what you do when you're thinking about analogies is, to me and Trevor, at least, is is think, talking through concepts. Um, and so sort of the, the idea of comparing a surgery, go in, get it done. There's not much sort of uh, follow through, I guess, versus uh, rehab, injury rehab was your analogy there for your type of tutoring. Um, that's really cool. So what would you say is like the, the main characteristics? It would be sort of long-term, adaptive, responsive, um, anything else that I'm missing? Uh, it's not necessarily long-term. It's mm. I'd say it's, it's highly variable and it's individualized. So like mm. some students might mm. be three sessions and all of a sudden we've unlocked everything that's going on wow. uh, in that moment. And then they come back a couple months later being like, this other thing popped up. And again, it's, you know, really depends on the student's degree of awareness of what's going on for them, their ability to articulate it, a lot of other factors that they don't have control over and like um, the school environment that they're in and how responsive it is to their struggle and what support mm -hmm. they can get there. Mm -hmm. So um, the length of time and additionally, the magnitude of change is really variable between students. Right. Um, but it is totally, you know, the cool thing that we do is everything is totally tailored around each individual student. Every mm -hmm. session is unique. Every plan is unique. There's there's nothing we do that is sort of pre-constructed um, more than like 10% of the way. Super interesting. Mm -hmm. um, my son just went to take the like gifted test that you take uh, <laughs> mandatory in the midst of a pandemic. We had to all put on our masks and go in and do this thing. Um, and he walks out, who knows? I mean, it takes months for it to get back, but he walks out and he says, he's he's six. That was a lot easier than I expected. <laughs> and I was like, who knows how you scored on that? But that's that's interesting to me. I just felt like, like, I wonder what you think about this. We usually start with the concepts, but I'm going to start with something controversial. Um, my feeling like as a mom is, well, if we like did school instruction a bit more differentiated and personalized, probably this test would not be this like huge deal that you'd have to identify kids who are gifted and then put them in separate sort of classes. Um, 
that I just feel something feels antiquated about it. And so I'm interested when you're when you work with Twice Gifted, you obviously know a lot more about this than I do. I'm just I'm wondering what you think about my 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 wondering about this gifted test. I, I, I mean, the, the concept of like, you know, here's this test that's going to tell you whether you're gifted or not to me is like, uh, that's that's one of the reasons I do this work is I think things like that shouldn't exist and those <laughs> those ideas are insane. Um, mm. I, I, it's the same way of taking a test that say you have a learning disability. Um, mm. You know, you really need to get into precisely how the test is constructed, what exactly it's looking for, what are the operational definitions of giftedness or the criteria reference. If it's norm referenced, what are the operational definitions? If it's criterion reference, like who's deciding what criteria makes a gifted student, mm -hmm. uh, how are you accounting for culture, how are you accounting for upbringing, environment, all these mm -hmm. factors that the child has no control over is going to dictate the, the tracking that they get in an educational system. It's supposed mm -hmm. to be fair and, and provide access for everyone. So the fact that you're relying on a test, which is going to surely be, you know, a, a very bad indicator of a highly variable and adaptive mind, Mm -hmm. um you're relying on that one moment of you know that snapshot of that student to tell you if they're gifted or not is sort of the insanity of terms mm. like gifted in the first place uh, mm. and that's one of my huge gripes is the way that we construct intelligence and potential and outcomes and we sort of just all smash them together and assume that they're all this one thing that you can figure out and measure and put metrics around could you talk to that notion of it does sort of sound like we're dancing around this idea this concept of intelligence and just riffing on a little bit of what Julie was saying, it sounds like there are a lot of critical attributes of intelligence that largely get ignored. And it is just this blanket word that we put down to articulate or capture what is like a really overly simplified and reductive idea for like human development and potential. So can you, can you talk about to your mind, what, what is intelligence? If we're going to talk about it. And is that even a useful term or is there another way that we should be looking at and framing this concept entirely in school? Yeah, I mean, I think smartness and intelligence really don't actually have much of a place in school. Um, mm. They're they're prone mm. to really problematic uh, framing issues of, of bias. And mm -hmm. Worse, they get used to sort of bludgeon away concerns about racism, misogyny, ableism. Um, and the problem with them is that even the scientists who design IQ tests can't necessarily tell you what intelligence definitively is or if you can actually measure it um, mm -hmm. in a human on a given day and have that measure be consistent. And, mm -hmm. um, you can't really account for developmental factors. You can't account for environment. Um, and this is sort of like the IQ test, which is, you know, a norm referenced uh, full scale IQ is the usually the first line of defense that most public school students have to look for learning issues if they get referred for learning struggle. So that in itself is really problematic because it's an IQ test, which is supposed to tell you how smart you are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what it's being used for is to look for the ways in which you are not smart, according to the people that made the test and according to a bell curve, which is based on everybody in the country's ability to attend school and go to school and have access to educational opportunities, which is informed, of course, by systemic inequity. Um, so if your bell curve is built on that, and that's the, that's the thing you're referencing a student's ability against, what you really wind up seeing is this ways in which the idea of smartness quickly moves from something that maybe a parent can observe about a child taking an interest in an idea or just like having a natural curiosity and a ability in something 
and it moves from that idea of like this child is bright in this way or this child is engaged really is more the idea is engaged mm-hmm. and is finding traction in this idea mm-hmm. and it quickly moves into this idea of we can measure this and that the measurement actually will tell you precisely what type of smartness you have and the ways in which you are not smart um and to me that's that's really like totally irrelevant to everything i know about brains at this point it's mm. it's a very convenient way to sort and organize students that don't fit into um this model that we have, uh, but it's really problematic in terms of equity, in terms of access, in terms of everything else, like the assessor bias, structural problems with uh, diagnostic practices. There's all these other ways that that feeds into sweeping students aside who don't fit a definition or a cultural expectation of smartness. So the mm-hmm. word itself carries so much confirmation bias mm-hmm. or availability bias because mm-hmm. of the ways that we use it and that it sort of floats around all discussions around money, around value, around worth. And really what we need to be focusing on, like Trevor said, is this idea of potential rather mm-hmm. than smartness. And the, mm-hmm. the goal shouldn't be like determine how much potential a child has, which we, I think we can all agree that's a pretty heinous <laughs> and grim <laughs> thing to Oof. be doing. Yeah. Uh, and instead, if we just said we're going to try and max everybody's potential everybody's out potential. With, mm-hmm. with no concern for its upper limit, just keep everybody moving up. Mm-hmm. Um, and this isn't for the sake of some, right? This is saying like, if we just all had this frame of like, we can really design yeah, education that. for this. Uh, there's a way in which you can actually build really, I mean, I do this all the time because I have the luxury of working one-on-one with everyone. But um, to me, I think you can get there pretty quickly if you're thinking about building flexible and adaptive ways of teaching um, and moving away from top-down direct instruction and really prescriptive approaches. Um, I think you can see that flexibility and adaptability feed into pretty rapid change for students that have never had that before. Um, Mm -hmm. So smartness and intelligence really just, to me, is used in all these wrong or unhelpful ways that move the discussion towards people's understandings of the work, regardless of where that comes from and what it's informed by. And there's no real awareness of the ways in which it might be dictated by socioeconomics or race Mm -hmm. or gender expectation, or just like cultural ways that we use the term and cultural associations with smartness and intelligence. Amen to that. You you hit you hit the nail on the head. I think about that word um, that I've seen in schools because what I do for a living is work with schools all over the world and and work with different teachers and sort of get the vibe of what teachers say. And a few years ago, I wrote a, I think I wrote a blog just like in the heat of the moment that the title was something like "Are we still staying my smart students?" Or is that really a thing? Um, it is indeed. We still, I still hear it all the time of like, oh, this could be good for my low kids. Like that, that's, that's what people say out of their mouths. And I have to like fix my face now that we're all on zoom. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but I think you hit the nail on the head in that, that term brings all of this inequity with it. And you also sort of touched on, um, and this is something that one of our previous guests, Joaquin Tamayo, is working on, which is fighting the notion that if you stop doing that, it's good for all kids. Because I feel like often teachers so worry that if you stop saying my smart kids and you start saying maximize potential, as you just said, that then the quote unquote smart kids are going to not are going to get short shortchanged for some reason. Um, and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how, if we did that, it would benefit all kids. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of gets at what we do. So I'll just circle this back to compensation patterns as a whole. So um, the, a lot of this, the idea of smartness itself is because we conceptualize uh, intelligence, you know, like, I guess the most reductive way we could talk about it would be 
it's like a fixed amount of intelligence that you have. But we also have these other ideas about how quickly you can pick up on something and how quickly you can change as another fixed attribute that isn't necessarily tied to like math ability or something, but rather that acquisition of new knowledge and even transfer, which you guys spend so much time researching and writing about. With that ability to take something and apply it in a new context, we often praise or even cognitive flexibility is the executive function term for it. But we praise that so much as associated with intelligence. Um, and really what we need to be thinking about, at least from all the stuff I've seen, is this idea of cognitive compensation, because it's actually a way to include everybody in that conversation and find ways to get to those places for all students. Um, so compensation is a very simple idea uh, in the body. This is when you have a muscle group that can't do something. And so other muscle groups will pick up the slack. So if you wanted to bend over to pick up a heavy log, since you're an agricultural person, you know, pre-industrial uh, revolution, you would bend over and you would either use your glutes or your quads or your hamstrings or your back or some combination thereof. Now, whichever one doesn't activate, the other ones are going to help do the work for. Uh, and that's going to depend on how, on how tall you are, on your hip flexibility, on all these other factors which make your body unique. Um, in school, uh, it's the same concept. If I suddenly wanted to do a geometry problem, um, and I'm really struggling with shapes, my brain might try to do other things to make the problem more accessible for me. So compensation mm. effectively is just the brain's way of responding to an unavailable pathway. It's a workaround. Um, so in, you know, neuropsychology is the field that I spent a lot of time reading about. Neuropsychology fundamentally deals with uh, three things. Two, the two things it spends the most time on is traumatic brain injury. The second thing it spends the most time on is aging brains and neurodegenerative disease. And the third thing is learning disabilities, <laughs> which spends the least about it, or the least amount of energy research goes there for in terms of dollars. But uh, the classic neuropsychology analogy is if you get hit by a line drive in your temple and you have a little bit of temporary uh, vision loss because of structural damage to your brain or structural inflammation, um, your other senses allow you to still function as a human, right? You can hear, you can smell, you can figure out what you can talk, you can do all these other things to figure out the sensory inputs you got from vision while your vision recovers. Um, brains have that same idea with neural pathways. It's not quite as simple as like getting hit with a baseball, but the idea is that there's genetic, developmental, environmental influences that dictate which neural pathways emerge and how they emerge in terms of their connections to other ones. And compensation happens when something isn't according to the plan that school thinks. So the brain basically routes it through a different set of pathways. But it's not, I, I really want to, it's, it's the reason why I want describe it as the way that school thinks of it is because it's not aberrant. It's totally normal and adaptive and dynamic and responsive to mm. its environment. Um, so the concept is if you're, if you're operating from that place where all brains sort of walk into school with these set unique compensatory patterns, um, all you want to do then is create parallel processes for them to realize that there are workarounds and then identify what does work well, what pathways are the strongest or the widest or the most accessible and help the students use those to compensate for the stuff that is really hard the same way if we go back to that rehab analogy the same way that a really good rehab specialist is going to make sure that if you tear your acl right and you repair your recovering after surgery they're not just going to say okay now do everything you did before right, right. they're going to they're going to walk into every component of what you did to create the injury in the first place and try to rewire every component of your body to not re-injure your knee Mm -hmm. um, and we have so much investment around physical rehab because we love spectator sports so much. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I know, I know enough about ACL tears that I feel like I could talk about them <laughs> at length because I love basketball. Right. Uh -huh. And so I yeah. read articles about, you know, 
ways in which Derrick Rose tore his ACL, I think at both knees and then a bunch of other ligaments. And LeBron James has never had an ACL tear because of these particular ways that their knees bend and their body mm-hmm. moves when they mm-hmm. land after mm-hmm. jumping. Mm-hmm. And I know that because some journalists wrote, mm-hmm. you know, 50,000 <laughs> words long form for a random ESPN, the magazine article, mm-hmm. but no one, no one can tell me precisely why a visual processing disorder how and why that's different than dyscalculia or just like a student, quote unquote, not being good at math. You know, mm. some people can, right? If you read neuropsychology textbooks, but there's no one out there sort of doing this for brains. And this mm. is the problem with intelligence is that if we can't really do that, then we have no clue how intelligence works. The same way that prior to all those groundbreaking surgeries that enabled ACL tears to recover, everyone assumed an ACL tear would end your career. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden, I forget the guy that figured it out, but basically you just uh, pull the ligament down and like, I don't know if you staple it, but it's kind of like you glue it to a different part of the knee and mm. voila, you have this new ligament. Uh, so it, it's funny that we have these ideas. It's not funny. It's actually quite tragic, but we have these ideas about intelligence that really demand cognitive flexibility, uh, transfer, a lot of these high, quote unquote, higher order executive functions. But if you dig into them, most of the cognition people studying them still just sort of put them in this black box of cognition that say like this is this concept we can't dig into and we don't really understand it um yet that's not being that sort of uncertainty and that degree of we don't know isn't reflected all the way back down into education where you're actually dealing with it all the time and i feel like if you had more awareness of how much chaos and uncertainty there is around intelligence around smartness around quote unquote higher order cognition mm. there would be way less discussions of what smartness and intelligence is um because you wouldn't really have any grounds to say, to know if that's smart or if intelligent, or if that's just that kid has those compensation patterns in play and they're working in this environment and this other one doesn't. Um, which, so compensation which, for me is that equalizer, that way of reframing all of these. Would you say that um, sort of this, the idea is so controversial in of like teaching kids different ways to approach a mathematical problem um, whereas some people say, oh, you know, when I was in school, two plus two was four and I, we didn't have to do all this new math. And, you know, that's kind of the, the, the <laughs> reductionist version of that debate. But I'm just wondering if what you just said about compensation and the brain sort of routing in paths that make sense to that particular unique brain, is that like what an example in the classroom be? you know, teachers giving a mathematical problem and just seeing the variance of, of ways in which students approach the problem in the classroom. Would that be an example of, of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, if they could then say like four or five of these students are getting this the way I'm explaining it, four or five want to do it this other way in which they're engaging, uh, let's say they really want to do it more in a visual spatial way, right? Mm-hmm. So they want boxes mm-hmm. around it or they want arrows or they want to align it vertically rather than horizontally and a bunch need me to talk them through it. Mm-hmm. That's more auditorily centered. That's like a processing dynamic uh, mm-hmm. that I'm illustrating right there where mm-hmm. there's preferences mm-hmm. for visual, which would be the kids who get it off the bat, visual spatial who want the lines or the shapes mm-hmm. and then auditory, the kids who want it explained. But even then, like if you had a teacher that could do that, you're differentiating. But it, if you understand that you have to prepare for that, I don't really think that takes away from math. Everyone's still getting to the understanding that you're supposed to have for them. The larger mm-hmm. problem is that we have no clue how brains naturally take to math or explore it because um, we just don't care about those things. And what we really care about is standardizing curriculum for a class of 25 kids. Um, which again, like, you know, if you try differentiating for 25 unique brains, if you approach it from this compensation viewpoint, right, 25 unique brains, but they're all individual little tiny workarounds, right? Um, 
I mean, imagine a room full of seventh graders and you have to try and trace back all the ways in which these compensation patterns originated so that you can get to the root mm-hmm. cause of why, mm-hmm. you know, this pro- this particular concept isn't uh, being carried over into a new context, isn't being transferred uh, to a new context. Um, it's mind-boggling how much effort that takes. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of the worry mm-hmm. is that, like, we're going to force all this work on teachers. But I think if you just, if curriculum can change along with the pedagogy, along with the actual instruction, I think that's where you have promise because mm. project-based learning eliminates a lot of these issues by just saying, here is the project, here is the end result. How mm. you get from A to Z is part of the project, mm. right? And that's going to vary with you as an individual. Whereas mm. direct instruction in math is really dictated on like, we have to hit these cases and these particular pieces of knowledge are essential algorithms you must take with you forever. Because if you can't, I don't mm. know, like Matt, if you can't graph a quadratic, you know, mm-hmm. then no one will ever let you, box packages at Amazon, which which is not true. <laughs> but it seems like that's the degree of certainty mm-hmm. we have about the ways in which math works, right? Mm-hmm. That math has to be taught in this bottom-up way where we, we don't get to anything important and you spend, I don't know how long you say from fifth, so you're five in kindergarten and then in junior year, you're like, what, 17? Mm-hmm. So it's 12 years of math instruction just for you to get to calculus for someone to tell you, oh, all this algebra you learned, actually now we're moving to the algebra of functions. Sorry. Um, and it's, it's like, you spent 12 years just waiting for the reveal. And then it's like, it just turns out to be like the last season of game of Thrones, you know? And it's like, <laughs> oh, oh it's which just... is very disappointing in a variety of ways. Well, and, and I, I think that's, um, and this is kind of a trend. We talked about this on our last episode with Brad Kirshner that in an attempt to quantify and, and understand and track and sort, whether it's a, a capacity, intelligence, potential, there is a, a flattening of, uh, and, and a shrinking of that complexity and and by doing that we are essentially i guess like collapsing all the different ways that people could approach a problem or or, or solve something because we're, we're more focused on quantifying it in such a way that we can teach a sort of prescriptive almost behavior um that can then be produced like on a piece of paper that can then be turned into somebody to grade and assess then we are like what is actually happening in the brain so i, I just think it's very interesting that we like need to get more comfortable and have more clarity with all the chaos and confusion that happens in our minds. Because by not embracing that, what we're actually doing is we are approaching it in a way that is wrong. We, we are not actually getting understanding as much as we are sort of like compliance or one's ability to operate mm. within a single, I guess, frame. So I, I just think that that's super fascinating. So could you, could you talk a little bit a bit uh, more about what are some things that you are seeing right now in classrooms that um, teachers are doing or can do to you know, maybe not be able to individually differentiate for every single student, um, but at least provide some more opportunities for that. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the best work in my opinion is the stuff that's really bridging um, these, these siloed ideas around like social emotional learning, brain-based learning, and even the people that are bringing in direct research and saying, here's a way to make this applicable to other frameworks. Um, you know, Zaretta Hammond's uh, cultural response to teaching in the brain is a, is a masterpiece of that. Um, mm. Mary Helen Imordino Yang, who's an effective neuroscientist who studies uh, emotions and its impact on learning is sort of like, in my opinion, one of the most important reads anyone can pick up. Um, but those two in general sort of looked at very complicated fields and said, here's the way in which these branch into everything else that we do, right? Mm. So Reda Hammond talks about culture and the ways in which it fundamentally paves the way for problem solving in a variety of ways. And it also mm. lays the groundwork for dealing with uncertainty for all the social emotional stuff that we seem to be prioritizing now um and culture does a lot of that and so if you can find a way to 
harness the inroads already laid, your learning is going to be enriched by that. Um, mm. Mary Helen and Mordina Yang talks a lot about how learning happens at this emotional envelope and that uh, if you don't feel safe and if you can't get to a place of safety, it's sort of emotional validity. Um, your cognition is, is shifted, right? You're, you start coding responses emotionally without even being realizing that you're doing it um, and how important safety is to learning. She has a bunch of other huge like landmark studies and, and research in her books that I, I'm sure changing and not going in depth here, but um, the people that are bridging those ideas are doing the best stuff, right? Project-based learning that's looking at culturally, uh, sorry, culturally responsive learning and community-based learning where you're seeing kids able to have more agency in their own instruction, but also connected to immediate outcomes that they can see, mm. um, sort of having that immediate ownership and this result that they can look at and say, I know where this is going. I know why I need to do something difficult. You're not like <laughs> people really love to talk to me about grit when it came out. And I know Duckworth now is saying like, it's not as important and you shouldn't use it as a stand-in for these other important ideas, but people still, there's like a grit hangover still where we talk about resilience mm. now as if that's, that's a big thing in self-care and social emotional learning. Uh, regulating your emotional affects is much easier when you care about the outcome. Um, social emotional learning is important, don't get me wrong, but if you're actually invested in change, right, you can deal with some unpleasantness. If you really want to, let's say you're a student and you're building a vertical farm in your classroom and you want it because it's gonna, you're gonna get to take it home and grow, you know, grow your own vegetables, and you really like that and vegetables are expensive because you live in a food desert, um, that to me is where it's like you could just plow past so much of the social, emotional, explicit skills and like, find a way to weave them into that like project, right? If you have the vehicle where there is investment and ownership, everything else can sort of get tagged into that. Um, so project-based learning that's also competency or mastery-based where you're, you're not really concerned with grades so much as you are just like getting a student through a certain amount of proficiency. Um, mm -hmm. And even that, I don't really like that word, but the idea that mm -hmm. the learning there is sort of more self-paced. Um, I think that's where you see students push into areas where they are uncomfortable because they're doing things that they want to do. And I think mm -hmm. most children want to grow and do things mm -hmm. that are dangerous mm -hmm. and uncomfortable. I mean, I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old, mm -hmm. I swear to God, they're like, <laughs> all they do is seek out ways in which they might die. You know, it's, like, it's just <laughs> constant. Like they're climbing on stuff. My two-year-old is always playing with electrical sockets. You know, he's mm -hmm. like figured out how to take the safety plugs out now. And like, it's great to see curiosity there too. Um, mm, and I, don't, mm. I wish you would stop playing with the sockets. I'm not saying <laughs> anyone should, but yeah. Um, you know, my point here is that kids take risks and kids uh, do things that intrigue them automatically. Mm, you don't mm, have to do indeed. any of that. What gets mm -hmm. beaten out of them by being told that you have to do it in this way. And like Trevor said earlier, this idea of prescriptive sort of top-down approaches, it does slam the door on exploring ways to do it yourself. And I think the unschooling movement has so much going for it in terms of that idea of like, you actually get to see how you thought of something, you conceptualized it, and then you get the feedback of finding out mm. whether or not that was valid. Mm. And there's there's other problems with unschooling and sort of some of the sweeping generalizations a lot of people make. Um, mm. And I'm not totally pro unschooling, but it does mm. have a lot of very cool things that I see lining up with a lot of the brain-based research. Mm. And I think the more that we can make school unschool, um, <laughs> you know, like that's going to help with a lot of these issues. But I also think a lot of really wonderful schools are already trying to do competency-based, project-based learning, That's right. where there's community investment, there's uh, student agency and voice, and it's all valid. And it's mm -hmm. all reinforced by everybody in the community. Just like, and, and parents aren't quote unquote stakeholders there, right? They're just mm -hmm. parents. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I think mm -hmm. the, 
the endless siloing of and rebranding of those concepts um, is kind of led us to this point where, you know, your effective neuroscientist does this thing, right? And then that maybe gets put into an evidence-based study and then it gets transferred over to this curricular thing. But because mm -hmm. it's all top down, it has to work through those silos and you can't really bridge them. Mm -hmm. The coolest stuff to me is where everyone's just out there really concerned with what do students care about mm -hmm. and then finding ways to get the other stuff in there through that vehicle. Mm -hmm. I was wondering, I was going to ask you about interest. So you just hit it already without me asking you, but uh, we all have small children. And one of my, Trevor's is really young, Very young yeah. <laughs> newborn. Um, but one of the things I love is watching it, watching all the stuff that I know as a profession, you know, as a professional in my own kids. And so as you were, when you were speaking earlier about what kids can and can't do in this like notion of fixed this fixed notion of intelligence. I was thinking about my just turned five-year-olds who this kid was speaking in full paragraphs in two languages before he learned to walk. And so like motor skills is just, it's just not really, it's not really his thing. Um, but he eventually, he went from first steps to running within about 10 seconds. And so my husband and I were, no, actually he went from act, just standing up without holding on to something to running like usually that takes a long amount of time, but it was really yeah. truncated. Um, it was late, but it was truncated. And so, you know, he was really struggling with, right, with like, you know, scribbling, even even basic scribbling um, to where like his teachers were kind of telling me they're concerned at preschool, you know, and I'm just like, ah, I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep over this. Um, and so I would try, like he was you into can't scribble. How will he, <laughs> he, he was into, he, exactly. He was into Paw Patrol. So I buy like a Paw Patrol tracing book and I do like all this stuff. And he's just like, whatever, mom, I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm going to go do this other thing. And then he gets into Minecraft and now the kid just turned five. All he wants to do when it's like not officially screen time and he can play Minecraft is draw in blank books, stories of Minecraft. And he like is writing letters and numbers to like tell the story of Minecraft. I'm just like, it, it blows my mind how fast he would. And he could spit, he would sit there for like four hours yeah. drawing in his book. Um, and so that's what made me think of it when you said, you know, where, where are kids and you could accelerate them pretty fast. Mm. So do you have any stories like that where you, you know, of course, don't tell us any names or anything like that, but like where a kid, you know, just took off in this way that either excited you or surprised you? Yeah, I mean, there's two I'll tell. Uh, I'll tell the really short one first, which is a student just finding traction immediately. And then I'll tell the one that sort of got me started on this whole track in the first place. But um you know, I had a student who had a really complex um, learning diagnosis, like complex mm -hmm. learning profiles. So this was a lot of intersecting diagnoses, mm -hmm. hard to tease out. Um, and we figured out that, you know, memorizing vocab just wasn't going to work um, ever. So we did every memory trick we could, and we got up from like a 50 to a 75, and that was really it. Um, but we figured out that um, basically if we could write papers out loud to one another and just like dictate and talk through concepts and also plan two to three weeks ahead when we had a paper, what we were going to do when we got stuck and how to, things to look for when we proofread, um, having that separate and away from the process of content generation itself. And also knowing that he could talk through and dictate what to write, um, basically took him from like a C minus to an A minus in, I don't know, like let's three months, four months. Um, 
but again, just separating the executive function component of the proofreading of the editing, where it's like you're looking through and you're doing all this stuff. And also if he gets stuck, because he would always get in these circular logic loops, um, sort of saying like, what did I say in this paragraph? And I'm going to read it out loud. And when I put little check marks after each concept that he wanted to talk about. So it's this way of like separating needing to actively track things in the working memory and expunge all of them very quickly onto an external store. But it was also about knowing that the emotional validity of his concerns were real and that he needed someone to say like, I need to figure out how your executive function works or how these components of your executive function work only with auditory stimuli and then design something that actually helps and then tweak it. And because we kept tweaking it and making adjustments, he got more and more invested in making the tweaks himself. And then mm. now I, get, I see him like, you know, once every six months, he'll pop in and be like, I'm stuck on this wording of this sentence. Like, what am I doing wrong? And I'm like, just say it out loud a couple of times, you know? And like, that's, that's where we are now. Um, but when we started again, he was, you know, totally in despair and um, no clue how to fix anything he was writing. Um, and, you know, three months later, it was like, this actually is, he was like, it's hard, but I could do it. Um, and that from a student who was like, I don't know if I, if I want to do, once I get to college, I think I'm just going to do math. I don't think I'm going to do anything with reading. And he loves reading, but just can't deal with the writing. So that's the first story where you just sort of, if you can, if you can dig into actually what's going on for a student in terms of those different components of neuropsychology, you can really find stuff that works for them right away. And I think also because there's a degree of granularity where you can hear what they're saying and associate it with those components of higher order processing or those really complex cognitive processes and break it down into smaller pieces for them. It just enables them to take more agency over the process. And then it's not like I need this person to tell me what to do. It's similar again to that rehab analogy. I need this person to show me how to do it and then I can take it over and do it myself. Um, so the, the other more depressing one is the one that actually started me out of schools, which made me leave the classroom. Um, I was at a private school, super rigorous, and I had this girl who was in my ninth grade English class. And uh, she was an okay student, and I sort of just assumed she was quiet. And um, we had to give a grammar exam every spring, and she was fine in the classroom and in the worksheets. And then she took the test, and she got a 55, which was totally unlike her. Um, so we, I was like, come to my office, let's talk through this, uh, what went on. And I was like, did you get sick? You know, I'm trying to find all these other causes for what's going on. She's like, no, I just, this is really hard. I just couldn't do it. And so I was like, all right, we're going to do a couple on the board and just tell me if they make more sense now that you're, I thought maybe it's time pressure. Maybe it's just test anxiety. So I throw a couple up on the board and she's just totally lost. Can't tell me where the verb is. Can't tell me what the subject is. All the stuff that she was fine on the worksheets is just gone. So, um, I say, all right, well, the, do this one sentence with me and I read it out loud. She's like, oh yeah, the subject's there, the verb's there. I was like, okay, well, where's, what's this? And she's like, oh, that's the indirect object. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna read you another one. And so we go through, we do the whole test. And I say, I, I just for an experiment, like how long do you have? She's like, I have 20 minutes. I was like, okay, I'll reach you as many as I can. We get through the whole test in 20 minutes because she's getting everything right. And she gets a 91 as I read it to her out loud. Um, so part of it might've been test anxiety, but the more important thing is that she had a subtype of dyslexia and couldn't functionally read. Um, and on a time setting, it just magnified that holdup. So normally she can read very slowly, but under a time setting, it had hit this point where her brain couldn't effectively compensate anymore, right? That slowness wasn't available. And so, or the time wasn't available. And so then it all just falls off. And so from a teacher observation perspective, right? It's like this student can't functionally read. In reality, she could, just not in the window that we've given her. So I want to be clear there that the subtype of dyslexia she had still meant that she could read. It's just a question of 
having the right environment. And what she normally got through, and I'd be giving her B minuses the whole year, and she'd be writing these okay papers. And that's again how novel. That's how like you know sort of uh, naive I was about <laughs> writing and about all these other things. I was kind of thinking of her as a as a number, as like a B minus English student. Um, and just the the shock of getting hit in the face with the realization that she had been dealing with this for at that point that would have been like four or five months in my classroom, and I had no clue that that was going on, and I just assumed it was all these other factors and made up all these reasons to validate my perceptions of her without asking, without seeking to understand how I could help her more. Um, and like, I, you know, like it, the fact that also she had been at that school for two years and no one else had caught that. I was kind of like, I can't, I'm not going to do this anymore if I can't actually dive into this and tease out what's going on. Um, you know, she did eventually get an evaluation and had, I think it was uh, dysodetic dyslexia, which is uh, visual or surface dyslexia. I don't know if it's visual, sorry. I always mix these up because <laughs> my brain just like, there's too many small labels to, to fix the things. But the point is, um, you know, that's, that's one of those moments where not knowing something led me to completely dismiss and marginalize the student who I really didn't care to understand what was going on. You know, I had mm -hmm. my own assumptions about intelligence. I had my own individual silo of what rigorous good instruction is and what writing should be. Mm. And I couldn't get outside of it. And so when I left to go sort of say, like, I'm only doing one on one from now on, that was the first thing I sort of tried to rectify. Is how can I make sure that never happens again for me with a student? Mm. How can I make sure I'm never putting myself in a position to rob them of agency, to rob them of voice, to rob them of that opportunity to actually say, this is the way my brain works? Mm. Um, so you, you sound overly harsh on yourself. I just want to point out there, like you, you, <laughs> yeah. you did still have that conversation, which I am, which sadly is probably, yeah. I'm going to guess the minority of teachers. Um, so, so, so kudos to you, at least for, for doing that and, and setting you on this path. And thank you for sharing that story too. That's, that's super um, just personal and interesting and, and uh, full of humility. And that I don't think is totally deserved. And, and could, you, could you talk a little bit about like the implications when you scale this to an entire system that is designed this way? Because I think, I mean, it goes beyond mm. just, you know, oh, a student was only getting, you know, a B minus instead of whatever they're capable of. When you look at like all of the, the, the relationships between like incarceration rates and dyslexia and baseline literacy and all that kind oh, of stuff. Mm -hmm. Could you unpack mm -hmm. what happens when you, you take those assumptions and you, you scale it to a societal level and you, you mix in, like you were saying, uh, the inequitable access to education and services and, and diagnostics and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, I mean, there's there's lots here. Um, honestly, the two best people to look at this since they they write about this more eloquently than I'm going to be able to say is Trey Hardrick, um, who's Mr. at Mr. Lit Edu on Twitter and Debbie Mayer, I think. Um, I think it's Mayer. Let me check. Um, but she's at Reader Prison and she writes about literacy rates uh, and incarceration rates and how tied the two are. And that's mm -hmm. it's super depressing, uh, precisely because of what Trevor's talking about, this ways in which when you scale. Yeah, Debbie Mayer, M-E-Y-E-R. Um, and when you scale this to a whole system, um, you have all these problems with access, with equity, with the, the actual ability to teach writing. Like literacy instruction isn't mandated in a lot of teacher training programs. And uh, a lot of states, uh, most states have required dyslexia screens, but the actual classification of dyslexia as a learning issue isn't even universal in the US, uh, which is huge. The stuff that I spent a lot of time getting upset about is the ways in which the evaluation process for learning disabilities is similarly totally inequitable and governed by capital barriers because 
your first line of defense when you get evaluated, it's not defense, sorry, it's a bad phrase for it. The first thing that you go to when you get evaluated is you get into a waiting queue for six to nine months, depending on the state that you're in. And if you get lucky, that's out there faster. And then you take a full scale IQ, um, which is a horrible test for actually teasing apart uh, learning disabilities. There's a bunch of neuropsychologists who've written on this at length about how full scale IQs are inadequate to address a lot of issues, but they, they leave out twice exceptional, they leave out nonverbal, you're not gonna detect anything on the autism spectrum there. So there's all these ways in which they're, they're already marginalizing a population of students. Um, if you go back into the classroom after you get that eval which says we couldn't find anything, then you have to appeal and get another eval done. Um, or they just write on the, I, they write on the little report, like we were unable to identify <laughs> difficulties with reading or locate a cause for difficulties with reading. And then you're just sent back into the classroom. Um, and if you're, if you're wealthy, um, you can pay a neuropsychologist to evaluate your, your child. And that depends, you know, where you are, but in New York city, a really good one is anywhere from like, I think 5,000 to $15,000. Um, and don't get me wrong, neuropsychologists are usually PhDs in clinical psychology. Most of them are exceptionally knowledgeable. Um, even then, some of them still can't tease out what's going on. Um, but you know, ultimately, if you can pay for it, you can get at least the test, which can detect those specific twice exceptional issues. They can find the intersection between executive functioning and processing, which can't actually be measured on the same test conveniently. Um, and you can find things like nonverbal issues, or you can find out if your child is autistic. Um, and so I think it's really problematic because if there's a capital barrier to getting a better version of the public service that you're supposed to be provided, you can't really scale anything. Pre-construction as an idea of like, we're going to standardize curriculum and make sure everyone gets the same equal access is, is in, you know, that's like you're, you're starting with a, a broken definition of fairness. Um, so it doesn't scale. I mean, that's the problem is it scales in these ways where it magnifies and amplifies inequity and a lack of opportunity and marginalization. Um, and from my perspective, the, the fact that money is the major difference in figuring out how to get accommodations or an IP that helps your child versus not. Um, I mean, Mickey Boaz, who's a, a person I've talked a lot with, wrote a book called One in Five, which details her struggles to get her first kid diagnosed with dyslexia. Um, you know, and there's people just write books about this because it's a horror show. And they're, you know, it's, it's nonfiction, but it reads like a thriller where you're like, you know, <laughs> how will the villain get away this time? Um, and that's what it feels like. It feels like you're fighting this invisible monster of, um, you know, jargon and language that wraps the inability of a school system to identify learning difference in any kind of constructive way. You're just punching into a big bowl of jello and mm -hmm. there's nothing you can find to grab onto to pull something out of it. Um, so I think you know, it doesn't scale definitely, but worse than that, it acts as a, I guess I already said it amplifies, but it's, it's really all it does. It just amplifies all the problems we have and then it throws them back on the students. And that's, that's really where I get on SEL stuff now. And Dina Simmons, uh, who did, runs Liberated, which is a cool way to do social emotional learning and anti-racism has done a lot of really great work and shouting this down quickly to say like, you can't just tell your students to manage their emotions if their emotions are valid and if they're reacting to not feeling safe, uh, telling them to compartmentalize. You're essentially teaching them to compartmentalize and just deal with it. Um, so her work's phenomenal and everyone should check it out. But that's one of the real dangers of having inequity and telling people that we just need to fix it this way or this is the problem with it, is that if you're not actually talking to the people who are marginalized by it, all you're doing is just telling them to go compartmentalize everything that they feel. You're invalidating everything that they do and that, that you're validating their existence. Um, so 
just to go back to that idea of student interest, I think student interest has to be both sides, like what interests the student, what they're curious about, but also what things they find to feel invalidating, what do they find, feel to find frustrating. And I, I don't, this is, I get into trouble for this because people get mad at me and they want to say like, if you don't teach the students to do hard things, they're not going to be resilient, right? Um, but I think, again, <laughs> there's a big difference between like a hard thing and telling a student to not have feelings or telling them that they shouldn't be angry or upset that one of their classmates got slammed to the ground by a school resource officer. You know, again, like it's if you're a child and you're seeing this and you happen to be black, I don't think there's any way there's, there's no amount of social emotional learning you can teach to a student that's like going to say, here's an answer for this. Now, now go learn. Um, I think the learning that has to happen is that child processing this and adults supporting that child in any way that they can. But the problem, again, with all this is you can't you can't do that for 25 kids in a classroom if some of the students are going to feel like that degree of attention for that one student is making them feel upset. And this is the problem with 25 kids in the classroom is standardizing everything in the first place is that if we're not really prepared to operate from this place of compensation, of uniqueness, of difference, um, and support kids in that, you're just creating environments where you're just choosing where to pool, where to send limited resources. And even in that, that's one those, this is another silo idea, but that's one silo of an even larger silo where the education system as a whole is dramatically underfunded compared to like the Pentagon's annual budget, for instance. But the way that this all gets better is that parents and teachers and students alike can, again, we go back to the idea of student voice, they need to, we, we all need to use our voices to advocate for change. And I think that part of the problem with all of these things and the siloing is that we've disconnected education from a larger idea of political activism and saying that there is power to change, there is power to advocate, there is leverage we can all have. Education is supposed to be for the people and serve students. The fact that so many of our students, like up to 40% of kids have learning issues. Um, most likely it's probably between 20 and 30, but if you were gonna go really high with the estimate, you could probably go up to 40%. And the fact is that most of those students don't get the adequate resources they need to overcome those. And if they, you know, and if they do, honestly, it's likely due to either luck, it's a particular brand of uh, issue that the evaluator or that the special education teacher has seen before, or it's about access to resources like capital for better evaluations, or a school district that has more teachers available to deal with it, or teacher training in that particular state. And the fact that it's so randomized just speaks to how desperately we all need to be shouting about the ways in which those amplified inequities are just tearing down potential left and right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we're, we're labeling it as smartness and ability and brightness, but really it's just, it's ripping potential away from children. And that's- I love that circling back to, to our original concept of potential and just, you know, sort of that's the solution of trying to look at every child through the lens of maximizing potential. And I love that you said um, earlier, something along the lines of there's no ceiling um, or yeah. you, you said it of like, not worrying about the ceiling. Um, yeah. I can't, you said it much more eloquently than that, but I was just like, yes, that's so nice that, you know, basically we're trying to maximize student potential and, and there's, you know, there's no sort of, uh, well, well, that's, that's the next grade levels material. So, you know, you got <laughs> to slow down. I honestly worry about that with my kids because my husband will be like, oh, should we be concerned because of this, you know, because of COVID, we took our kid out of preschool. And so he's going to kindergarten. And I'm like, no, we should be concerned. He's going to be a behavior issue because he already knows this stuff. It's <laughs> just like, we should not be concerned. He's like missing something. Um, and so really, I love that idea of, of not being, not concerning ourselves with what the ceiling is, not saying like this kid is, you know, is going too fast. Um, 
I think is is where you also get at that equity piece for kids who who want to go further. Sometimes I see I see teachers being like, no, 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 that kid's kind of uppity. You know, <laughs> we we gotta we gotta we gotta get that kid back on track, back on fifth grade level. Yeah, I mean that's that's the other danger with not doing it through a compensation based idea is that you you run away from this idea of being able to help kids who are clearly already grasping what's in play or have a particular set of pathways that just make it easier for them to pick up on something. And that's, that's going to be domain specific too. Um, meaning, you know, you have auditory process, you have auditory processing, visual, visual, spatial. Um, and, you know, there's endless ways in which there's variation in development, but there's going to be some students for whom this idea of latent ability, as we want to call it, is really just an expression of pathways that are developed in a particular way that make it easier to do X, Y, or Z. Um, that's where the whole myth of learning styles came from. And it's not entirely wrong. <laughs> like there's just, Easy, there's lower energy expenditure for those particular tasks. Um, it's not a learning style. It's just an expression of pathway, developmental neurological pathways, right? That have adapted to their environment. But even those, I mean, like you could just bring it back to equity too. Like you, you can't necessarily have more pathways available if the air you're breathing has significantly more pollution than your suburban neighbors, right? And so I think like the fact that pollution levels are so much higher in inner cities, which is proven, actually produces more children with asthma than areas that and so I think you're you're looking at systemic problems with the way we've structured everything, and, and then you blame it on the students, right? Because you you didn't hit this number on a test, um, so you're not in the gifted program, right? And then you bring it back to where we started. Um, I, I love how you bring up that that idea of learning styles because I, I think it points to something that happens in education, which is sort of my own personal Dunning Kruger quest that started out of being like, oh yeah, of course, learning styles. Everyone has one. It's the best way to teach. And then people realize, oh well, maybe. Like, oh, learning styles aren't a thing. So now you have people who are like yelling, oh, like learning styles, like tear it down. It's not real. And what you bring in is this fact, well, learning styles aren't necessarily what we, uh, what they're often envisioned and presented to be, but like there are neural pathways that develop based on different um, compensatory methods that students have. And I, I just love that idea of um, it's complicated. And a lot of times, whether someone is for something or against something, it's, it's way more ideological, I think, sometimes than it is cognitive, even if it's cognitive science scientists who are advocating for something because it is so complicated and there's so little that we truly know. Um, so I, I really, I appreciate that, um, that complexification of something that I think is right now, at least on my, my timeline, I see people yelling at uh, about back and forth. And mm -hmm. the, the answer is it's, it's complicated. Yeah, and, and way more complicated than anyone ever wants to admit. Yeah. Uh, that's right. And I, I wonder if, and feel free um, to, to reject this question, but I wonder if, <laughs> you know, you, you, to like an average teacher listening to this podcast, from what you know, what you learned about the brain, what would be sort of a top takeaway that you would want them either, so I'll give you, I'll give you a choice, either what blew your mind the most or what would you do if you were back in the classroom with 30 kids? I'll talk about what's going to help teachers. And then I actually got a jet to go scoop up my kids because my yeah, wife just yeah. texted. Um, <laughs> so I'm um, on pickup duty. So um, the, the things I would tell any teacher looking to actively improve what they're doing from a brain-based perspective would be uh, read as much about those quote-unquote higher order cognition pieces or, you know, higher order reasoning, however they're mm. described. Mm. And just try to find ways that you can trace that back to what you see of students that you would categorize as bright. And see if you can collect data on your own observations of that and how that lines up with executive functions. And so the problem with executive functions is they get labeled so much about regulating your affect, keeping your bag organized, all these really low level ones like starting and stopping. And it's true that those are necessary, 
But most of those quote unquote higher order cognition pieces or even the higher order executive functions, those are cognitive pieces that are essentially combinations and restructurings of those simpler ones, just in more complicated ways. So the fact that shift, which is about taking in new information or listening to an instruction, then modulating what you're doing, you also shift when you bounce in and out of processing demands. It might not necessarily be um, like an inherently process, like a process that you're necessarily aware of, but if it suddenly feels much harder, you're definitely going to be aware of it. So I think what I see with this is if you can tease apart a lot of cognition and a lot of problem solving in terms of the smallest atomized components you can get to, even if it's just saying like when I've worked with students that have problems with this, this is the type of stuff that has helped. Having those array of options out there lets that student piece apart struggle and just start breaking like that, that feeling that that weight of I can't do this suddenly starts to fade. And that's that same rehab idea, right? That if you're really interested in helping somebody, you're not there just to say, this is what to do. You're going to show them, you're going to walk them through it. They're going to make sure you understand everything above and below it. And then ensure that that student, you know, like for a rehab person, you're making sure the injury doesn't come back. But for a teacher, what you're doing is you're making sure that they're aware of the difference between like, you know, struggle, which might be productive or healthy or good and pain, right? Which is like a sign to stop. And so I think a rehab specialist, similarly, there's some exercises you're going to do, which are going to feel uncomfortable. If you prepare a student for that knowledge, then they can make progress. If it's painful, right, then maybe it's a processing issue that you can't quite overcome with what you know of that student. But if a student can feel safe to share with you that this is too hard, that enables you to actually make that distinction and not just assume that the student is lazy or not trying hard or having an off day. And so I think for me, another thing I would say is start with two questions always, which is tell me what you see and tell me where it starts getting hard. And just always have that be the first two things you ask a student who is struggling, because then that creates a safe envelope for them to just know, like they can say, I can't see it today. And it's not weird. And it's not this expectations of what they've done in the class before to prove to you that they're still smart. It can always be today. It doesn't work for me. Mm -hmm. Love that. Tell me what you see and tell me where it gets hard for you. I'm going to try that out. I'm going to try it with my own (laughs) kids this afternoon. (laughs) Awesome. So if people want to find uh, more of your work, Michael, where do you recommend they go? Uh, so pillarsoflearning.com is my site. I've got a couple, uh, infographics up there that explain compensation in shorthand. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, all the time about a variety of different things. Half of them, not very serious at all. And the other half, very serious. Uh, so if you weren't there, it's, it's a real big <laughs> Uh, and then I'm, I'm launching this new thing called Penelope education, which is about bringing compensation, professional development, training, uh, articles, book reviews, everything else about uh, trying to get a unified, you know, bridge between the silos for everybody. Uh, and that'll be launching Love soon. It. That'll be PenelopeEducation.com whenever I can finish writing a copy for the site, um, which who knows, you know, <laughs> next month, hopefully. Love awesome. it. Love it. That's so awesome. Much. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Conceptually Speaking. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world. If you like this podcast, feel free to like, comment, or subscribe on your favorite platform. If you want to learn more or get involved, check out our website at edtosavetheworld.com and join our Facebook group, Learning That Transfers.